Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. In the fall of 2003, I spent two weeks in Oxford revising my book, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, for a second edition. On Sunday, I walked down to St. Aldate's Church on Pembroke Street in the center of town. No one knows who St. Aldate was, but the church's first rector, Reginald, started serving the church all the way back in 1226. As I walked into St. Aldate's, the usher handed me a bulletin and enthusiastically greeted me. We welcome all sinners, he said. He had no way of knowing it, but those were the words that I needed to hear right then and there. These words summarize the mission and the message of Jesus. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They echo the accusation of his enemies. This man welcomes sinners. The Gospels tell us how many sinful people followed Jesus. These people felt safe with Jesus, somehow sheltered rather than judged. In his 1972 book, The Parables of Jesus, Joachim Jeremias shows how there's a whole group of parables that emphasizes God's love for sinners. Remarkably, these parables share a unique characteristic. They're all addressed directly to the enemies of Jesus. These parables don't merely announce the good news. They also vindicate it. Jeremias says, they are a controversial weapon against the critics and foes of the gospel who are indignant that Jesus should declare that God cares for sinners. Some of these parables describe what sinners are like. True prodigals have no pretensions. A second group of the parables invites the self-righteous to consider what they themselves are like. In the parable of the two sons, for example, they're like a child who didn't do what he promised. And then third, there are the parables that describe what God is like. In the prodigal son, God is like a welcoming and waiting father. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 for this week contrasts two characters. They're polar opposites, and they set in bold relief two ways of being religious. One way is death-dealing. The other way is life-giving. The Pharisee was religiously righteous. The tax man extorted revenue for the Roman oppressors. The religious expert was smug and confident. The outsider was anxious and insecure. The saint paraded to the temple. We read how the sinner stood at a distance. 
as if his physical distance from the sacred building expressed his spiritual alienation. The righteous man stood up. The sinful man looked down. In an act of shocking narcissism, the Pharisee prayed loudly about himself. The tax collector could barely pray at all. The Pharisee puffed out his chest in pride. The publican beat his breast in sorrow. The parable punchline announces a reversal. The respectable, reputable believer, so competent and accomplished, the one who had done everything right, <clears throat> was rejected. Whereas the secular sinner, disreputable, inadequate, incompetent, we read, went home justified before God. It's hard to imagine a more earnestly religious person than the Pharisee. He prayed often, he fasted regularly, and he gave generously to the poor. His spiritual regimen was stringent, but he made two tragic mistakes in his religious life, one about himself and one about other people, the combination of which is toxic to authentic spirituality. First, we read in Luke 18, the Pharisee looked down on everybody else. Contempt for others lurks in the human heart, bubbling up easily and frequently. We imagine that in denigrating others, we validate ourselves, or that at least we will compare favorably. We all, we all stumble in many ways, writes James, but what we need when we flounder isn't moral condescension, but human compassion. Not humiliation, but empathy. Not shame, but hope. I've always loved the tender wisdom of Saint Maximus, the confessor of the seventh century. He writes, the person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment, each of those who are trying to make progress. The flip side of condescension toward others is justification of myself. This was the Pharisee's second mistake. We read that the Pharisee thanked God that he was, quote-unquote, not like other people, a thief, an evildoer, or an adulterer. His religious narcissism was a form of spiritual self-justification. We'll invoke almost anything to justify ourselves. Intelligence, my alma mater, money, family, sports, politics, work. A common form of self-justification invokes your zip code, a transparent insinuation that net worth equals self-worth. To a greater or lesser degree, I've tried all of these self-justifications. They don't work. 
Society is relentless in demanding proofs and justifications from us, and it's easy to take the bait, especially if you're an accomplished person with lots of ammunition who can rise to the challenge. But self-justification doesn't work, and even better, it isn't necessary. For in the words of the famous hymn, God accepts me just as I am. Full stop. We should listen to the wisdom of the 4th century desert saint, John the Dwarf. He said, We have put aside the easy burden, which is self-accusation, and weighed ourselves down with the heavy one, self-justification. To live without self-justification makes me feel vulnerable. But when you think about it, living without self-justifications is extraordinarily liberating. As soon as you accept that you're accepted by a good God, you never, for any reason, need to prove yourself. To get to that place, Jesus says that we need only seven words, those mumbled by the tax collector as he stood at a distance and stared at the ground. God have mercy on me, a sinner. The moment we breathe those words and cast our unadorned selves upon God, we experience his love without conditions or limits. This, of course, is the so-called Jesus Prayer. Rightly understood and spoken from the heart, that's the most important prayer anyone can utter, and in a sense, the only prayer you'll ever need. Why? Because it proceeds from a clear-eyed appraisal of my own human condition, and, more importantly, from confidence in the character of a God who welcomes sinners and even self-righteous saints. For books this week, I review a title by Michael Kinsley. It's called Old Age, A Beginner's Guide. New York, Tim Dugan Books, 2016. This book is 160 pages long. I first enjoyed the work of the liberal commentator Michael Kinsley back in the late 1970s when he was the moderator of the conservative show Firing Line of William Buckley. He later did stints at the New Republic, Harper's, The Washington Post, The Economist, CNN's Crossfire, and the Los Angeles Times. He was also the founding editor of the online journal Slate. Today, Michael Kinsley is a columnist for Vanity Fair and a contributor to The New Yorker. When Kinsley was 42, back in 1993, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Instead of acceptance or confrontation, he chose to deal with his disease by denial. That worked for about eight years, more or less, after which he went public at about the age of 50. In 2006, he underwent deep brain stimulation surgery. Today, Kinsley is 65. 
In this little book, Kinsley uses his experiences of Parkinson's disease to reflect on the baby boomer generation in general and the specter of old age and death in particular. He writes, Sometimes I feel like a scout from my generation, sent out ahead to experience in my 50s what even the healthiest boomers are going to experience in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. There are far worse medical conditions than Parkinson's, and there are far worse cases of Parkinson's than mine. But what I have, at the level I have it, is an interesting foretaste of our shared future. A Beginner's Guide to Old Age. Kinsley considers several popular measures of a successful life. Mere longevity, maintaining lucidity and cognition as opposed to dementia, and the hope for a good reputation after one is gone. In his last chapter, he contrasts the baby boomer generation, the largest and most affluent age cohort in American history, composed of the 79 million Americans who were born between 1946 and 1964, with their parents' greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw put it. Most of the material in this book previously appeared in different forms as magazine articles. Some of it as old as 2001 and 2006. Consequently, and even some minor editing could have prevented this, there's some repetition from chapter to chapter. Kinsley is always a fun read, but more for his intellectual wit than for any deeply personal wisdom. He has a distinct writer's voice, but one that always seems to enjoy the sound of its clever self. So, for deeper wisdom on the themes of growing old and facing death, I recommend other books that I've reviewed for Journey with Jesus, most notably those by Barnes, Christensen, Gawande, Hitchens, Kalanithi, and Pillamark, all of which you can see at our comprehensive index of book reviews. Once again, Michael Kinsley, Old Age, A Beginner's Guide from the year 2016. And now for movies. This week I review a movie called Tony Robbins, I Am Not Your Guru, 2016. I might have heard of Tony Robbins, born in 1960 as Anthony Mahavoric. I might have known him before my friend told me to watch this Netflix documentary. Robbins came from a chaotic and abusive family. He left home when he was 17 and never returned, and didn't go to college. But today, he's one of the most powerful, self-appointed, self-help gurus on the planet. He earns about $30 million a year, has written bestsellers, done infomercials, is a philanthropist and a peak performance coach, and the master of the aphorism like turn fear into power, or anyone can be successful at almost anything. He's been married twice and had a child with a third woman. 
Tony Robbins is most famous for his seminars called Date with Destiny, a six-day, 12-hour-a-day emotional marathon that costs $5,000. For the most part, this documentary movie follows the six days of one of these seminars. I found the psychobabble, the emotionally abusive tactics like firewalking and board breaking, and his so-called science of taboo language, hard to watch, even scary. It's like Dr. Phil on steroids. But three things became clear as I watched this movie. First, Robbins is an earnest believer in his snake oil. Second, many people have experienced shocking amounts of pain. And then finally, they long to experience honesty, authenticity, and healing. I watched this film on Netflix. Once again, the title, Tony Robbins, I Am Not Your Guru. And once again, a favorite part of the week, our poetry selection. We continue with a series of poems by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. This week, the title of the poem is Primary Wonder. Days pass when I forget the mystery. Problems insoluble and problems offering their own ignored solutions jostle for my attention. They crowd its antechamber along with a host of diversions, my courtiers, wearing their colored clothes, cap and bells. And then, once more, the quiet mystery is present to me. The throng's clamor recedes. The mystery that there is anything, anything at all, let alone cosmos, joy, memory, everything rather than void. In that, O Lord, Creator, Hallowed One, you still, hour by hour, sustain it. Denise Lebertoff, Primary Wonder. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.